Well, good morning, Northside. You know, I had higher hopes for the second service. I had to get the first service to redo that one. They're not loud enough. I was hoping you guys would be a lot louder. Good morning, Northside. That's a lot better. It is such a joy for us to be here with you today. Uh, As Scott said, my name is Dan Reed. I'm here with uh, my wife, Alyssa, and our two-month-old daughter, Amelia. She did fantastic for the first service, so say a prayer that she does equally as well on this one. Um, I just want to thank you, uh, a lot of you who I've already met and talked to, uh, last night at the, at the fellowship, uh, just want to thank you for being so welcoming and kind uh, to myself and my family. Um, you know, there's a, a, a center on family here, and already even in just a, a small glimpse, we feel like we're family by the way that you've treated us, and so I thank you for your hospitality. Um, for those of you who were there last night, you got a little bit of my testimony, you got to know me a little bit more. But I know some of you guys didn't get to make it. Um, so I'd like to just kind of share with you a little bit about me, and uh, then we'll get into the Word together. Uh, I was raised in Tennessee, uh, my, uh, raised in a Christian home. My dad was a, a pastor, and uh, it was through his faithful witnessing, faithful witnessing of my mom, um, that I came to know Christ at seven. You can do it, baby girl. You can do it. Maybe she was amening. Um. My parents raised me, discipled me through my childhood and teenage years. Uh, Shortly after graduating high school was when I first felt God's call in my life to be a pastor. Uh, In 2010, I moved to Louisville, Kentucky. That's uh, where I studied at, uh, Undergraduate School of Southern Seminary. And that's where I met my wife. Uh, We were married. She's doing good. I just love that little girl. Um, we were married 2013, uh, served our first three years together in marriage, in student ministry, and then moved to India together uh, for two years uh, with the IMB. Uh, we came back just the beginning of last year, and uh, it was my heart to, to go back into being a pastor, and then it was also our heart to grow our family and enter into the world, Amelia Joy. Uh, and so it's a, just a pleasure for us to even be here and talking about the possibility of us coming and, and joining the family here. One of the things I'm most passionate about is discipleship. Uh, there's two ways in which I think of discipleship. The first way is just simply being a disciple of Jesus. Uh, my own personal walk with the Lord uh, following Jesus, trusting Him, loving Him, serving Him, delighting in Him, knowing Him, being like Him. Uh, So being a disciple, when we talk about discipleship, I think of it two ways. The first is just being a disciple of Jesus, following Him. Uh, The second aspect in which I think of discipleship is making disciples of Jesus. So there's being a disciple, and then there's making disciples of Jesus. So reaching others with the gospel and helping them grow in their faith in Jesus. And as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, I would hope that this is something that you all are passionate about as well. In in fact, the word discipleship is a word that I would use to describe not just a part of our Christian life. It's a word I would use to describe the entirety of our Christian life. 
Uh, There's one author uh, that writes this about discipleship. Uh, Discipleship is not a class you take. It's not a seminar you sign up for, a degree you earn, a program that you go through. It's not a 12-week Bible study. It's not a 40-day home group. It's not even a week in class. These things are, are included in what we do in discipleship, but it doesn't describe discipleship itself. He says, discipleship is the course of your life. Another author that that I I like uh, writes in his book, being a disciple is simply being a learner. It's what a disciple is. And therefore, discipleship is what he would say, learnership. To be a disciple of Jesus is to learn a whole new way of life from a new master who is Jesus and to be part of his kingdom. It requires a radical unlearning of your former way of life uh, that's lived in rebellion towards God. It means being forgiven for that former way of life and your sin against God. And then it means submitting yourself to a new teacher, Jesus, who gives you the very words of God himself. In this sense, learnership or discipleship is not just one part of the Christian life. It's not just one stage of the Christian life. To be a learner of this kind, to be a disciple of this kind, It's just simply to be a Christian. It is our whole life. Or we could take the words of Jesus himself. That's usually what I like to end up going with. Uh, Matthew 16, Jesus is telling his disciples, uh, giving them a call of discipleship. And he says, if anyone would come after me, anyone, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's not a class. That's a whole life. Or you could look at Jesus' words in Matthew 11. These are really encouraging words. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me. This is a call of discipleship. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Who, who is that this morning? That's me. Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my work upon you, and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's not a class. That's a whole life of coming to Jesus and learning from him and finding rest in him. So we could probably just simplify discipleship And and maybe three L's. And these are not the main points for today. These are bonus points for you. So you get regular sermon points, and now you get bonus points that are not even written down. So three L's. Losing, learning, and living. Easy way to remember what is discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Losing one's old sinful self and way of life. Turning from sin. Losing that. Learning from a new teacher and a new master and a new king who is Jesus, God himself, and living a new, better life with Jesus in which we joyfully seek his will and his kingdom above everything else, which begins now and lasts for all eternity. That's discipleship. That's being Jesus' disciple. Now, there are so many things that I could share with you this morning about discipleship. What it is, what it isn't, what it looks like, practically speaking, how this takes place within the church, so on and so forth. 
but I've been told I have 35 minutes and no more. And I was pushing it in the first service, I think. I've been told if I go over, I'll lose some friends. And if I go under, I'll gain some friends. So hopefully I'll go under. So two things I want us to focus on this morning. And I want us to look at Matthew 13, 44, two truths, and then just some practical application for, for our life. Uh, so if you have your Bible, I hope you do. Turn to Matthew 13, 44. We'll look at this, this parable of Jesus uh, together. Matthew 13, 44. Two things I want us to think through today, uh, directly related to discipleship and us being disciples of Jesus. The first one is on the infinitely greater value of Jesus and his kingdom compared to everything else in the world. And the second thing is the joy that we receive from being his disciple. The joy that we receive from being his disciple is infinitely greater than everything else in this world. So Matthew 13, 44, often called the parable of the hidden treasure. And here's what God says in this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So two truths and then some application. Here's the first truth that I want us to see in this parable. The first truth is a truth about Jesus and his kingdom. And this is the truth. The value of Jesus and his kingdom is infinitely greater than everything else in this world. Now, this parable is about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And an important question we should ask when we come to a, a text like this is, what is the kingdom of heaven? It's an important question for many reasons. One, because, well, we don't really use kingly language much these days. We don't usually talk about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus in our normal everyday conversations. And so there might be people here that if you asked them, what is the kingdom? They might say, I don't know. It's also important because the kingdom is the central theme in Jesus's ministry and teaching. Everything that he's talking about all throughout the Gospels is all about his kingdom. Matthew 4 uh, verses 17 and 23. This is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So that's the beginning. If you read all the way through the gospels, you'll see everything's about Jesus being the king and his kingdom all the way to Acts 1-3, which is at the very end, after Jesus' death and resurrection, just before his ascension. Acts 1-3 says, He, Jesus, presented himself alive to his disciples after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about, what do you think he was telling them about? The kingdom of God. And then in Acts 1-6, we see that Jesus is again with his disciples, and they're asking him a question. Their minds are set on one thing, and they're asking him, Lord, will you at this time restore what? The kingdom to Israel. They're thinking about Jesus' 
kingdom. That I said, will it come in fullness now? One definition of the kingdom is this. The kingdom of God, very simply, is God's reign. He is king. His kingdom is his reign. And since his sovereign purposes are to save and redeem a people for himself, his, his reign is a sovereign action in the world to redeem and deliver a people and then at a future time finish it and renew his people and the universe completely. One helpful verse that kind of just summarizes the kingdom, that helps us get a picture of what the kingdom is, is Colossians 1, 12 through 14. Paul is writing to the church there, and he says to them, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So the kingdom could almost be treated synonymously with salvation or reconciliation, being restored in your relationship to God through Christ. Because the kingdom of heaven is the rule of God to save us, and to save us is to bring us from destruction into abundant, joyful living with Jesus. So kingdom saved from sin, darkness, Satan, the wrath of God, and transferred us into Jesus' rule, him as Lord, him as Savior. And with him as king, in his kingdom, it's mercy and grace and peace and joy that starts now and goes for all eternity. So it's about the kingdom, this parable of the hidden treasure. This parable is also about value. Specifically, the value of Jesus and his kingdom his kingly rule, his salvation, his grace, his mercy, and the truth that knowing Jesus and being in his kingdom is far superior to everything else. It is infinitely greater than everything else in this life. Notice what Jesus compares his kingdom to. The kingdom of heaven is like what? Treasure hidden in a field. Do you think of Jesus in that way? And do you you think of being his disciple, being in his kingdom, with him as your Lord and Savior, do you think of it in that way as a treasure? That's what this parable is comparing Jesus' kingdom to, his kingdom. It's like a treasure. So we would assume that it's something that's very valuable, yes? The question is, how valuable? How valuable is this treasure that we have in Christ? Value can be a tricky thing sometimes. It can be tricky because value is often subjective. And attributing value to something can also be very subjective. Something may be valuable to me, but it might not be valuable to you. You guys probably know the saying, one man's trash is another man's treasure. To one man, it was nothing. To another man, it's something very valuable. For instance, love notes from my wife. Very valuable and precious to me, but you might pick it up and go, eh, not a big deal. She's not your wife. (laughs) To me, it's wonderful. Another example, I keep with me almost all the time in my Bible or in another book that I'm reading, Uh, a hockey ticket from 2003. 
uh, Nashville Predators versus the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim. How much do you think this ticket is worth? Well, in 2003, before the game, it was worth $20. After the game, it was worth a dollar off any regular menu dinner or platter at Captain D's. And of course, May 20th, no, May 31st, 2004, uh, is when the coupon expired, so it wasn't even worth the dollar off the seafood meal after that date. And probably now, if I were trying to give this ticket to you, how much would you probably give it for me? How much money? Probably nothing. You would say, this is just a piece of paper, and you would toss it in the trash can. But to me, this is very special. Because when I look at this ticket, I don't just see a ticket to a hockey game. I see a memory with my dad. My dad's the one that took me to this game. And so for me, it's very valuable. To me, this is worth much more than $20. It's certainly much more valuable than a dollar off of a seafood menu. In fact, if you wanted to give me $20 today for this ticket, I wouldn't give it to you. I would say it's worth more than that. I'm not sure what, a, what dollar amount you could put on this to try to pry this out of my hands, but it would have to be an awful lot. You see, value can be very subjective. What's valuable to me may not be so valuable to you. And the truth about value is that it can also go up and down. The value of something could be uh, marked at one point here and then be something completely different later down the road. Uh, supply and demand. Think of the housing market. You could buy a house for 100000 one day, and a few years later, it's worth twice the price. Same house, different market. Or how about a car? You buy a new car, you drive it off the lot. It was worth one price. Is it worth the same price when you leave the car lot? Absolutely not. Is it similar? No. It goes down thousands as soon as you drive off the car lot. Or think about a diamond ring. I think we would all say diamond rings very valuable. But what if the context is a famine and we haven't eaten for days? Would you trade it for a hot meal? Many people probably would. The value has gone down. At the same time, value can often be something that's objective. There is often a universal understanding that the value of certain items or things are always greater in comparison to others. And probably the greatest example that I can think of is the health and the life of a loved one or a family member. If something happens to your family member, you'll drop everything for them. Something happens to your, your child, they get sick and you need to take them to the hospital. The first thing that you're thinking about, shouldn't think about, is how much is this going to cost? The thing that you're thinking about is their life and their health. The cost is nothing compared to the loved one that's before you. The point of this parable is that Jesus, his kingdom, his salvation, is objectively the greatest treasure. There is no treasure greater than knowing Jesus and being in his kingdom. There's no opinions or personal feelings mixed in here. Notice the man's response when he finds this treasure that's been buried. What does he do? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found. 
What does he do when he finds it? He covers it up. I don't want to lose that treasure. I don't want somebody else to take that treasure. I want this. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field so he can get that treasure. Jesus is so great. His kingdom is so great that to lose everything else on earth, but to have him is a happy trade-off. Obviously, if you understand the kingdom for what it is, salvation, reconciliation with God, deliverance from sin, freedom from death, freedom from Satan, a life of eternal, joy-filled living with Jesus that starts now and then goes on forever. If you understand this about Jesus and his kingdom, it shouldn't be difficult to understand why it's so valuable. You might think, who wouldn't want this? Who wouldn't want freedom from these things? Who wouldn't want joy in Christ forever? Well, there's a lot of people who wouldn't want this. The world is filled with people who don't value Jesus or his kingdom. Does that mean that he's not valuable? Does that mean that he's not worthy? No. The problem is not the value of him and his kingdom. The problem is they don't have eyes to see. The man saw the treasure in the field. He knew what he was looking at. So many people in this world, they don't know what they're looking at. In fact, this is exactly why Jesus taught in parables. Matthew 13, 13. This is why, Jesus says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. And yet Jesus looks at his disciples, Matthew 13, 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. 2 Corinthians 4 is a really helpful passage that goes along right with this. Seeing the value of the kingdom. Seeing the value of Jesus. Seeing his glory. Seeing his beauty. In their case, this is the Apostle Paul writing, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Disciples of Jesus see the infinitely greater value of Jesus and his kingdom, and they treasure him above everything else. Because of that, they consider the loss of anything. We consider the loss of anything in this life for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of his kingdom to be a joyful investment, a happy trade-off. It's nothing if we get Jesus. So that's the first truth. Truth about Jesus and his kingdom infinitely greater, infinitely more valuable than everything else in this world. Second truth, a truth about discipleship. Now here's the truth about discipleship, being Jesus' disciple. The joy that comes from being Jesus' disciple is infinitely greater than any so-called joy of this world. Notice the phrase, in his joy. In this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he went and sold all that he had so he could get the field. 
the man does not go and sell all that he had begrudgingly. He's not doing it out of obligation. No one's forcing him to do this. He did it in his joy because he knew the surpassing value of that treasure in the field was better than anything else that he had. And disciples, the disciples of Jesus, they didn't leave everything to follow Jesus begrudgingly. And we don't do anything for Jesus either begrudgingly. We don't serve Jesus out of obligation. We don't do it out of mere duty. Jesus' disciples left everything to follow Jesus in their joy because of the surpassing value of Jesus and his kingdom. You can see this clearly in the lives of the disciples. One of my favorite passages is John 6. Right after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is teaching this crowd that's following him, wanting him to feed them more. And he's teaching them how he's the bread of life. And he's saying a lot of things that are seem to be pretty crazy to the crowds. And it says, John 6, 66, after Jesus is teaching them, says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus looked at the 12, and he says to them, do you want to go away as well? You want to leave me as well? And Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where would we go? Who would we go to? You are God. You are Lord. You are King. You have the words of eternal life. There's nothing else besides that. The truth is, every so-called joy in this world, if you could have it, if you could have everything in this world, but if you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. You have Jesus, and if you lose everything else in this life, you have eternal joy. You have everything. The supreme value of Jesus in his kingdom and the supreme joy that comes from being his disciple is something we often lose sight of, though. At least I do. How easy it is to get distracted by lesser things that ultimately do not satisfy our souls. So many things that promise us satisfaction and joy that let us down. And yet, time and time again, so easy to get distracted by those things. Or how easy it is to look at the Christian life, how easy it is to look at being Jesus' disciple, living in his kingdom, and seeing it as only a chore or a duty, something that we're obligated to, maybe even just a tradition, but not something out of joy. These two truths that Jesus and his kingdom is infinitely greater, infinitely more valuable than anything else in this world. And the joy of being his disciple is infinitely greater than everything else in this world is so important for our lives. No matter what age group you're in. You're a teenager? There are so many things vying for your attention. There are so many things that would look at you and say, this is what will bring you satisfaction. 
This is what will bring you joy. And yet, they're filled with lies. There's so many things that you could pursue in this life that aren't Jesus, and they're telling you, come this way, come this way. You'll be satisfied, and you will not. How important it is for you to see Jesus' glory and the greatness of his value and the joy that, it, that comes when you're his disciple so early on now in your life. And if you don't get this, as a middle school student, as a high school student, you will fall time and time again after temptation, 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 and you will be left in sorrow. But if you would, if you would get this, oh, the joy that you would have. Or adults who are raising kids. You want your children to grow up to love Jesus and to treasure him and to follow him all of their days. They're looking to you. Are you treasuring Jesus? Do you show them a life that demonstrates that Jesus is greater than everything else? That his kingdom is better than everything else? That his ways are better than everything else? And that there's joy to be had in being his follower? Our seniors. Generations are looking to you, seniors. And they need to see the joy that's had in being Jesus' disciple. They need to see the treasure that Jesus is. So here's a few practical applications for us. Two truths. Jesus and his kingdom is infinitely greater than everything else in this world. Being his disciple, the joy that comes from being his disciple is greater than any so-called joy of this world. Here's some just practical applications for us. First one, and I got these three applications from the church website. Church's mission and vision. Invest your time, talent, and treasures. First one is invest your time. Invest your time into being a learner of Jesus. Invest your time into being a learner of Jesus. Listen, you haven't finished your process of learning until you've been made perfect. If you don't look exactly like Jesus yet, you've got learning to do. Here's some ways that you can invest your time into being a learner. Being alone with God in prayer. Being alone with God in prayer. Secondly, devoting yourself to knowing and obeying his word. Here's a question for you. When was the last time you had an unhurried quiet time with the Lord? Like time that you just went and spent time with God without thinking about what you had to do next. Or without rushing through it so you could get to do what you had to do next. That's the kind of time I'm talking about. Just being with him in prayer, in his word, not hurried, not rushed. Just spend time with him. Another one, engaging in intentional relationships with other disciples in the church for the purpose of helping one another grow towards spiritual maturity. There's multiple ways that we do that. There's multiple gatherings that we participate in. The first one is what we're doing right now. Regular participation in Sunday worship where we gather together as a whole body. We sing together. We worship together. We hear God's word together. We fellowship together. So, so be a part of this. Make this a priority. Secondly, I would say don't stop here. 
Don't make this the only involvement that you have within, within the body, within the church. Discipleship is a walk. Take the next step, maybe. If you're not involved in a Sunday school class or a small group, take that next step. Participate in Sunday morning worship. If you're not in a Sunday school or a small group, join one. I would say even go further than that. Spending even more time beyond corporate worship, beyond small groups, spend even more time, men with a group of men, ladies with a, with a group of women, on a regular basis to dig deeper into the Word and to hold one another accountable. There is no possible way that you can spend too much time with Jesus, and there's no possible way that you can spend too much time with other people who will encourage you to love Jesus and treasure Jesus. It's not possible. It's possible to spend too, too less time, but not too much time. So invest more time. Secondly, invest your talent, skills, passions, spiritual gifts into loving God and others. Here's the truth. God has given you gifts. If you're a disciple, if you're in the church, if, if Christ is in you and his Holy Spirit is in you, you have gifts from the Holy Spirit. And God has made you with skills. He's given you passions. And he's given them to you for the purpose of serving others, building up his church, advancing the gospel, loving him, loving others. So the question might be for you, what are your talents? What are your skills? What passions has God given you? What gifts has the Holy Spirit given you? And how are you using them to love God? How are you using them to love others? How are you using them to serve others, to build up the church? It's God's intention that you use them. So what are yours and how are you using them? Here's probably the last thing. Invest your treasure. Invest your treasure into things of eternal significance, not in the perishable things of this world. And don't just think bank account. <laughs> everything that you have. Leverage everything that you have for the sake of Christ and his kingdom, making him known. Brothers and sisters, he's worth it. Jesus is infinitely greater. His kingdom is infinitely greater than everything else. Everything else compared to him is nothing. And the joy that comes from being his disciple, infinitely better than any kind of so-called joy we could have here. Believe that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for the joy that it is to gather together with your people. The joy that it is to, to sing together. The joy that it is to fellowship together. The joy that it is to, to learn from your word. Jesus, you, you tell your disciples in John 15, I have said these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Oh Lord, I pray that we would see the infinitely greater value of who you are, Jesus, in your kingdom. And would you give us eyes to see the infinitely greater joy it is to be your disciple versus pursuing anything else in this world. Help us to treasure you, Jesus, together. Help us to put you first in all that we do. We love you, and we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.